0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you people, I, yesterday, yesterday was a holiday. It was Columbus Day, and so I was, Joanne was working, and I was going to make dinner, and I saw that Sprouts had swordfish on sale. Now my friends I always go, you shouldn't get swordfish, you know it's bad for you. Of course, these are people that drink every night, and they also smoke cigarettes. And I'm sitting there, and I, I got home, and I dozed off on the couch, and I woke up, and I said, I want to get the swordfish because I just want to get it done with, and it's hot out. So I was thinking there wouldn't be school yesterday because it's Columbus Day. Now, I live in Burbank, and if I want to go to Sprouts, I have to go through this heavily infested school kids getting out because Burbank High is right there. So I'm thinking it's 3 o'clock. I'll be fine. I'm there. I'm out. Well, first day, school was in session yesterday, and I was so pissed because it takes me, like, 30 minutes because their kids are running out and they're pulling out and people are backed up. So I don't know what's going on with the holidays these days. I mean, I mean, I, I laugh. at. When I was growing up, we had holidays were set you know we had the monday for columbus day the president's day and then we got because we were a jewish neighborhood we had yom kippur and rosh hashanah but now i'm sitting there going i I can't got it now i I can never go at three i thought i was going to be lucky yesterday I was screwed. Anyway, enough about me. That's uh, we have a great show today. Our guest
1: is Scott Lowell. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks. I'm sorry for that. What a terrible day you had. Isn't that no? not just weird? Because it is. I mean, we're, we're around the same age. Yes, yes, and, and Jewish and, as well. So I understand. No, I'm the, not Jewish, actually. I just oh, I grew, I, I grew up in a like.
0: Jewish neighborhood, and <laughs> I, I everyone thought I was Jewish all my <laughs> life. All my. <laughs> my my town was 90% Jewish, and uh, and everyone just thought I was Jewish, and I I loved it because I and got I get the, the
1: opposite. House. People don't think I'm Jewish because Lowell Lowell is. My my family, my dad's family changed our name. He grew up in, in Massachusetts and they wanted him to go to Harvard and Harvard had a quota on how many Jews they would let in, believe it or not. And so they picked the waspiest name in Massachusetts, yeah. which is Lowell. So I have this very waspy <laughs> name, but grew up very Jewish. So yeah. So you grew up, uh, you, you grew up in New Haven. Yeah. Just outside New Haven. Yeah. There's a, a comedy club called Joker's Wild in New Haven. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of it. I've never been. I don't know if it was, how active it was when, I'm not that I ever would have gotten in when I was in high school there, but. I remember Toad's Place. I remember the Rock Club, but uh, I never went to Joker's. Now, is it Yale's in New Haven? Yale is like pretty much all they got. Okay, <laughs> it's yeah. a very sad... Uh, the poor city, they keep trying to make it look nice. You know, they'll, they'll lay down cobblestone streets and try to make it look like ye old, you know, right. New England city. And it's just, other than Yale, it's, it's just not a very attractive place.
0: Isn't that sad? It's like, yeah. and there's always like these good schools and sort of like a... a, a uh, some areas aren't that nice in New Haven.
1: Right, yeah. And it's always been that way. I mean, since I recall, you know, back in the 70s, it was that way. It was dang- It was a little dangerous if you walked a few blocks from Yale, and yet you had this beautiful, idyllic, you know, the perfect Ivy League campus. Well, that's like University right of
0: Pennsylvania. In the part that's in Philadelphia, if you walk a few blocks up, you're like, wait a second. Because, you know, we think of Philadelphia brownstones and the right. historic. But if you walk up, you're like... Oh my God! It's that
1: way too. Oh, that's interesting.
0: So now, now you're you're an actor. Yes. Now, as a kid,
1: did you want to act, or when did you start this road
0: into this? Because
1: you do insanity. Yeah. I well, I knew probably since I was 12 years old, and prior to that, I mean, I I always had an artistic bent, and my you know the, the family I grew up in was a very medical family. Um, so it was kind of, I was a bit of an oddball. My sister ended up, she's a lighting designer as well too. And we were, we were both adopted. So maybe we just didn't get the medical gene pool or something. But, um, when I was 12, I I had started playing the French horn and I went to music camp. I went to Interlochen arts camp in Michigan, which is, uh, a crazy, it's, it's, it's slightly a a bit of a a Nazi death camp there. Like you have to wear (laughs) uniforms, you have to wear like corduroy pants in the summer and different colored socks and sweaters depending on what age group you're in and but I was there to play the French horn but I uh, uh just before I went my best friend at the time Timmy Litton was taking a, an acting class downtown in New Haven and I went just to join him and uh, it was taught by Tony Giamatti who's actually Paul Giamatti's mom and his brother Marcus Giamatti and their father A. Bartlett Giamatti ran Yale at the time and later was commissioner of baseball and, but Tony Giamatti taught this class and I kind of was the best one in it. I just took to it. And so when I got to interlock in that summer, they were doing a play and I auditioned for it and uh, I ended up playing Rip Van Winkle after he woke up, you know, the twenties. I was always playing the old guys from that point on, like I was always spray painting silver in my hair. Now it's there permanently. But, um, uh, yeah, so that was the point. Like I said, this is what I want to do since I was 12, but I didn't, um, I just kept going to school. I went to a liberal arts college. I didn't go, you know, I, I didn't audition for, you know, professional work throughout high school or college. I just kind of kept going to school. Now, now
0: first of all, one question. How did you pick the French horn? Because my sister played the French horn and the cello. Oh, God. Which was... but They're actually pretty. That's interesting because they're both very mellow kind of instruments. Cause, well, she used to make. Uh, um, remember when silk screening was big? Oh, yeah. Well, she used to make silk screening shirts with a. French horn on it for uh the school, like they would sell
1: oh that's interesting that's funny because so that I, was her design I, I you know I started with I'm trying to remember which came first. I think I tried well, I know I had piano lessons. we had a piano guy, my sister was a piano prodigy, she's extraordinary, and we had a teacher who used to come to our house, and my brother played as well, and my mother decided I should play the piano. His name was roger Warner Roger Warner, I think his name was, and so she would have him come to the house. We would have dinner, and then he would give each of us a lesson in, in our uh, in our living room. And I don't know what happened. I went in there one day. It was maybe just my third or fourth lesson, and I was trying to figure out the theme to Dragnet on the piano keys, and I was just kind of plunking out like ding, day, ding, ding, oh, ding, day, ding, day. Ding, day, ding, 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 ding. And I'd finally get it, and i just play it over and over again. I was so excited. I think I was six or seven. And he came in and literally picked me up by my neck and threw me off the piano bench and said, no more lessons for you. (laughs) So that was that. And then I tried the trumpet, but I think that was like in fourth or fifth grade, but I got my first set of braces and I couldn't play the trumpet anymore. And by the time the braces came off, the only instrument they had available was the French horn. Um, But I loved it. It's a great instrument. I wish... You know, I keep every now and then I keep trying to pick it up and play it again. But when you lose your embouchure, as your sister, I'm sure knows, like the cello you could pick up, you could, you know, I'm sure you can remember the fingering and that could all come back. But once you lose your lip, it takes forever to get it back. And but I used to I used to love like playing in an orchestra with it. I hated recitals. Playing solo with it was more terrifying to me than anything like I can perform on stage now in front of thousands and thousands yeah, that's of what's, people what's funny. you it's... know but because with the French horn like the the slightest little quiver of your lip and you right. just sound like <laughs> crap you know so uh, so I played all through high school my mother was very strict with us with practicing and things and she made it kind of not fun <laughs> so all my siblings and I as soon as we got to college and got out of the house we all dropped our instruments and for my sister it was the biggest shame because she was a brilliant piano player and that's that's a shame. For me, like the world is is, is doing okay with right. me playing the French horn.
0: So now, now you get out of college, and I yes. know, I know. Now, how did you gravitate towards Chicago? Because I know you went to Chicago yes, to follow I the the theater dream, and and yeah, you know, how did you end up there? Because you're
1: a kid from New Haven. Now, where did you go to college? Uh Connecticut College, which is up in New London, Connecticut. So, yeah, so you're you're close was, to New York. Absolutely, New York was always the dream. That's you know, you know, I went to so many Broadway shows growing up. We would go down to New York all the time with my family, and that was. Absolutely where I was going to go. And like so much of my life, it was complete dumb luck. Um, a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me in college uh, had met some, uh, a group of people that were starting a theater company in Chicago. And it was the summer before my senior year of college. Uh, and they needed an extra guy. In their numbers, and my friend recommended me, and they said yes. And so I went out just for the summer to start this theater company. And we were trying to be like the young Steppenwolf, you know, we were trying to follow their template exactly. They, you know, Steppenwolf started in a church basement in Highland Park. We started at a JCC in in Deerfield, which is the town (laughs) right next to Highland Park. And we were trying to come up with this whole new way of doing theater where there wouldn't be a director, everyone would have equal say. It was. It was uh noble ideas that didn't quite work, but it was very exciting. And I remember we went into um into Chicago to see a show. They were doing uh Steppenwolf was working on a musical with Tom Waits called Frank's Wild Ears.
0: Great is that
1: amazing. Tom Waits is awesome. Tom Waits is awesome. It was my really my introduction to him and to Steppenwolf. Um and they did this show, and it was a weird show, but it was, you can, you know, the album, Frank's Wild Years, you, you can get now. The music was amazing, and Tom Waits was in it, and there was a Salvation Army band on stage with him as the as the band, and it was this incredible thing. And, and the people in the audience were, there was biker gang people, there were business people, there was such a mix, and I really got the feeling from that, and also from how our little theater company was embraced, too, that this is a city that, if you put it up, they will come, you know, and if it's halfway decent, you'll do it forever. I mean, and you could too, you know, we could, this would be a theater, you know, your recording studio, here. you would turn this into a theater, anything you could make into a theater. And if the work was good, people would come. And that supportive kind of atmosphere, not only of the artists, but of the people who lived in Chicago, it was just so inspiring to me. And so I went to Chicago because I, when I finished college, I thought about going to grad school, but I'm one of those people, I don't know if you're the same way, that I learn better by doing. Right. You know, and I just didn't want to take any more classes. And so I was in Chicago for about 11 years and mostly just going from show to show to show and learning and growing. So that was my grad school in a lot of way. And I I love that city.
0: Now, as you're there, I know you got an apartment early edition and some TV stuff. Yeah. Because I know back then they shot a lot of stuff in Chicago. Yes. But now as you're sitting there in Chicago, and I've heard some people, you know, they get in that Chicago mold like they yes they're making a living they're doing what they love very comfortable chicago all the people i've met met a lot of second city people and all just wonderful people i mean just supportive absolutely and i could see as as an actor or improv or a comic it's very uh it'd be hard to leave because you know but then also you sit there and go you know well how long can i stay here yeah at what point because what point did you decide to move to la because is there was there a certain moment that you said you know what i've outgrown chicago i mean and that's um, very hard to admit when you do
1: it that. is it's very hard and, and you're exactly right it is you know i mean you get that blue collar work ethic there and that feeling of ensemble and where y- y- it's hard to get a big head there you know everyone is willing to pitch in and do whatever but because it is a smaller community um for me i find you do hit a bit of a glass ceiling and there's a limited number of casting directors there So, once they decide who you are and what it is you can do, that's kind of what you are. And there's an A team and a B team and a C team, you know, in terms of who they're going to call in and who they're going to cast and things. And I was on the B, maybe high C team, I don't know. Um, uh, And I was comfortable and I was working enough, but I was kind of doing the same thing over and over again, it felt like a bit. And um, so, partially for that reason of just starting to get the, you know, the artistic it just to try something else, and I was, uh, quite honestly, I was a big theater snob. Like I wasn't interested in film or TV work. The the TV stuff you mentioned, I didn't do till maybe my last year. Okay. Um, I was just theater. Um, and I had a friend who was uh, becoming a writer and a director of films, and he we had a long talk, and he kind of made me understand where like this is another uh, skill set, and this is another form of artistic expression that maybe. Might be interesting for me to explore, so the combination of kind of hitting that glass ceiling, wanting to try something new artistically, a crazy girl I needed to get away from and and the winters man i needed i oh. I was getting more and more depressed <laughs> every year I was there, and the thought of eternal sunshine and springtime sounded pretty good, so I came out here just for a visit and found that um, eight tenths of my community from chicago was already out here so i had a huge network of friends and and still mostly the people i hang out with here are all my chicago friends um and it kind of just sealed the deal for me and i remember it was in november around thanksgiving and i had been walking on the beach in malibu in my shorts and t-shirts and i went back to chicago and got off the plane and the wind hit me and it was so cold and i just said yeah done i started packing my bags and i came out here january '98. Now, when you got out here, mm-hmm.
0: was it like you were starting over because you, you know, you, you knew people. I knew people, but you have to get an agent. You have to do that. Was it? Was did you make the transition very easily?
1: I, you know what, the city was very welcoming to me here, and that's what again, like one of those signs that made me feel like, all right, I made the right decision. I, I came out, and again, I hadn't done much. I'd done enough in Chicago to get my SAG card. I knew you needed your, you know, your union card to get out here. I, you know, did my best to raise enough money to, that I could live for like five or six months and not worry. Um, but um, a friend of mine introduced me to her commercial agent uh, within a few weeks after moving here. The first thing they sent me out on, I booked. And I, again, I had never really done commercials, but I think the market was shifting at the time. Because it, it, I think prior to me, it was like, you remember that really fast-talking FedEx guy? Yeah. And it was these really extreme character types. Um, on commercials and they kind of started shifting back to more like a doofy kind of guy next door thing and So my first year I ended up doing something like 12 national commercials. What were some of the commercials? Uh, the first big one was this Nike commercials one of my favorites. Uh, I have some of them I've dug up recently and put up on the web. It was me and literally all the world's best runners at the time Um, Gail Devers, Michael Johnson, all like the winners of the New York and the Boston marathon. And I was just an average guy out on my run. And one by one, they started appearing behind me until this huge marathon of runners appeared. And I was having to haul ass to try to kind of stay ahead of them. And then I get into my house and I just check my time on my watch and that's it. Um, and it was a three day shoot of me just running, running my ass off. Um, so that was, and that one ended up winning a lot of awards and, and things like that. And that was my second thing I shot out here. Um I did uh, a series of commercials for Budget Rent-a-Car which were great and again won some awards were very popular with a, a team of ad execs trying to come up with new ideas and they would imagine things like well what if we gave everybody jetpacks and then they'd cut, they'd cut to a thing of a guy with a jetpack going into yeah. the electric wires so I was part of that thing um but what was great about most of these commercials was that a lot of them were dialogue free but they were all kind of narrative in their content you know there wasn't like eating a hamburger and there were some of those but most of them had great stories they were telling and i was working with these amazing directors who this was their day job too you know they were film and tv directors who were doing these commercials and so i got paid for to do all this on-camera training i learned so much doing those commercials uh at the same time i also had sent my my headshot and stuff out to all the good theaters around town the good equity houses I got cast in a show up at Pasadena Playhouse that summer, a Noel Coward play, and uh, from that I got my theatrical agent. So I got set up relatively quickly. Uh, you know, by my first summer, I was set up with a great team. Um, I was working. And yeah, uh, the commercials. I had the commercials which is money back, which then, was a lot a of lot, a lot, lot, lot of now, money back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, and then I started doing guest spots on sitcoms like Frasier and Caroline in the city. I did a movie of the week and my second summer out, I booked Queer as Folk. I booked a series. Now, when you
0: booked that series, cause I mean, back then that was a groundbreaking series. I, yes. mean, I mean, now if, if, it was a, if it was a series about gay men, it's like, all right, you know, because like, right. after Queer as Folk, then there was the L word on Showtime. Right, exactly. And it was a type of show where only cable would look at that because yes. now it's like, I know the, I think it's the, um or one yes yes yeah.
1: is that's my friend peter page who okay. I was on cruise folk with it's, it's on that show it's, it's on, on uh, abc family yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. about a uh, two a lesbians. lesbian couple biracial yeah. lesbian couple right yeah
0: so because now we can do that yeah but when then i mean what is that like for you to audition and what was the buzz because it's one of those things also you think people go you know i mean we're I mean, a lot of people would be like, well, wait, what? Like some agents, because it was such, I mean, it was only, it was about 2000, which is 15 years ago.
1: 15 years ago, you know, right as, right as we were going to head into the bush years, you know? So it was, um, you know, I mean, a lot of this I found out later again, when I, I talk about dumb luck in my life, you know, I, I just thought it was an incredibly scary kind of thing. And I, you know, was intrigued by it. I actually had two auditions I was supposed to go on that day. One was for a movie about firemen. And then the other was Queer as Folk. And I kind of said, like, I'm not getting cast as a fireman. Let me just just focus on the Queer as Folk script. And the character initially, I mean, he was described as being pudgy and balding. And I I knew I didn't quite fit in with that. But I completely got him psychologically because, especially from having moved to Los Angeles and uh, that mindset of kind of feeling like you don't fit in this world. I've I've often said that L.A. is kind of like... A big gay club in a lot of ways it's a it's a world where beauty and youth and wealth in some ways are are prime and if you don't have those things you just are invisible and i had even in my you know my year and a half of being in la had gone to some parties and you know tried to talk to some women at these parties and they would walk by me like i was a ghost you know so i and that's who this guy this is the, the world this guy lives in because he uh, was older than the rest of his friends in the uh, in uh, in the show. Um, he's only attracted to young, pretty boys who want nothing to do with him. And right. so he's perpetually alone and, and lives a miserable life, you know, watching porn. So, <laughs> so I got him. But, um, but at the time, uh, you know, again, I found out afterwards, I think there was something like 2000 actors that they had, you know, sent out for Linda Lowy, who was our casting director that would not come into audition for the show. Entire agencies would not send in their actors because it was gay. because of the gay content.
0: Isn't that crazy? I mean, crazy. now, I mean, and then it's so funny. And then when yet
1: yeah, when Ellen made
0: that kiss, it made huge ratings, you know. Right. It's, it's just weird how the business has changed. I mean, it's like, once again, it's, you're an actor, okay? That's right. what you do. You act. Right? right. You know, it's not like, they're going, okay, well, you know, you're gay.
1: Right. No, I'm an actor. No, and we, you know, we had to... Y- While we were shooting the series, when you when you ask about the buzz, again, like I didn't know that. I mean, Queers folk, Showtime viewed as their Sopranos at the time, because that's like what what was on the air. The big shows at the time were Sopranos, Sex Sex in the City, and Showtime was trying to compete with HBO at the time, and they kind of saw this, and it it surprised them because 50% or more of the audience ended up being straight women who watched the show. They thought it was at first going to be a niche show, but they knew there was something exciting and dangerous about this show. And I, again, I had no idea. I just was intrigued by the project. I honestly didn't know how they were going to put this on air or or film it because it was very graphic. And even in the initial script, it was very graphic. I thought I was going to be safe from that being kind of the loser of the group. That did not prove (laughs) to be the case. But, um, uh, we were sat down by, uh, one of our execs at Showtime, Pancho Mansfield. And, um, he told us right before we started, we had our first like interview with the press. Some uh, an author named Charles Kaiser was writing on us from New York Magazine. He was the first; he had the exclusive rights to us first. But then we we, we were on Time Magazine, Newsweek, you know, CNN, like everything. You know, this show was like you say it was a huge thing. And we were told like, look, you're going to be asked a lot of personal questions. You're going to be asked about your sexual orientation. You're going to be asked, you know, a lot of things, and you need to decide how you want to handle that. Um And Exactly like you said, for me, I kind of felt like I'm an actor. It's important for me to people to get to know these characters first. I'd, I had read so many interviews with actors playing gay characters on other shows at the time, other television shows who seemed to constantly make a point of, you know, talking about my girlfriend or my right. wife or things like that, you know. And to me, I found it a little offensive, like... I'll play a gay character. I just don't want you to think I actually am one. And again, I get it in terms of the business in Hollywood and at that time and, and why all those actors didn't even want to audition for the show. But to me and some of the others in the cast, it was important, those who were straight, that there were some, some gay actors in the show as well, uh, to let them know the characters first. And that's, so that's how I would always answer things then is like, my character's gay. That's all you need to know. And you'll get to know me later.
0: Yeah. Now, now, when you went to audition, mm-hmm. how long until you got the part? Was it a long process? Because, as you say, one thing is, it wasn't as much competition. Right. Because people, yeah, And looking back, their, their agent's probably gone, God, I'm, I'm an yeah, idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did I do? Exactly. You know? But how long was it until you actually got the role? Because, once again, it, it was you had done commercials. Yes. You have been a theater guy. Yes. A theater snob. Yes. And then you're doing sitcoms you're doing everything but it's some yeah. TV's like i mean the it's last still pretty thing, new to me yeah. yeah
1: and most of us in the cast i mean other than um hal sparks who had been the host of talk soup at the time um and then sharon glass you know when she came on board a multi-emmy award winner you know that was it everyone else were you know quote unquote unknowns um and I think they kind of liked that in some ways, and they never, you know, they never inquired about our sexual orientation, things like that. My casting, I, you know, I, I brag a bit that I was the first one cast in the show. It may not be for the best reasons. Uh, I think, you know, again, from that initial description of the character and who, you know, who they ended up with, uh, I don't think they had a clear definition of the character in their mind, and they were looking for just someone to come in and define it. And because, as I said, I understood him psychologically so so well. Uh, it went very quickly. I went in. I auditioned for Linda Lowy and uh, and John Brace, her partner, first. A few days later, I got called in for the producers, auditioned for them. And I actually went out of town. I went back to Chicago, and then I was going to Connecticut to see my mom. And while I was in Chicago, I got called back to test for the network. And I was the only one they brought back in to test. And um, Jerry Offsay, who was the head of Showtime at the time, was rather upset about this because he was felt a little strong-armed i mean they always have options to show the executives you know they don't want to they don't want to be told this is the guy and and he even said to to dan litman and ron cowan our our execs they say he, you know he said this is the only guy in hollywood who can play this part and they said trust us just just see him and jerry often said to me afterwards he said and you walked through that door and god damn if you weren't the perfect sad sack I was like, oh well. <laughs>
0: I think that's a thanks,
1: thanks, Jerry. But so that was it. Like I had, there was, I had very little competition in that way. And it's just that, you know, it's that thing of the right actor, right part, or something, I guess. And and where I was at in my life at that time too, of of understanding that character and being able to bring something to it that no one else did. And so I was the first one cast, and the rest of them had to go through multiple. <laughs> rounds of testing and things like that but that was it i was done now when you when you when you started the first season Mm -hmm.
0: what did what did the whole cast think of how long the show would last because once again it's it's a hot button yeah if it people like it which you said the demographic was the viewer was more than what they thought it was right right it's like the sopranos i mean when the sopranos came out people were probably like well we're not gonna watch that show or breaking bad but when it came out what what was your what were you thinking, like, okay, did you sit there and go, this might last for a season or two, or, or did you think it would just catch on as
1: hot as it did? I mean, I did, you know, honestly, at first we didn't know, I mean, we went through the usual, because I think there was something in our contracts, like, you know, we were guaranteed the first nine episodes, and the first season, and, and Showtime, again, to their credit, uh, you know, Queer's as Folk was based on this British uh, series that they did uh, only eight episodes of, I believe. Um and it was shopped around here hbo was going to do just a two-hour movie of it and showtime said we're going to pick it up for a full season and so they did we did 22 episodes the first year without from from the get-go so that was what we thought would happen but we were all only contracted i think for the first nine episodes and then it was like then we'll see so we always had a little bit of that panic and we didn't we weren't allowed to see dan and ron would not let us see any film uh I think we were shooting the seventh episode. So we'd been there a long time. And again, none of us, most of us had, had never been on a series before. I'd never gone through this experience of living a char- with a character for this long. And we shot nine months the first year. Um, and I will always remember, you know, we, we went to Hal's apartment to sit, and they were finally going to let us watch the pilot, which was the first three episodes, actually. It was a three-hour-long pilot. And we sat down and we watched it. And I, I was it was one of the best things I'd ever seen and it was electrifying, you know, and the, the hair stood up on my arm and then I knew we had something special and especially, you know, this cast. I mean, I would worked with them on set and, you know, done scenes with them and played with them offset, but it's something different when you see them, what they actually come across like on the screen and right. they were just such an electrifying, amazing cast. So I started to have a feeling and then, you know, when we finally had a premiere in New York, uh, and the show started airing, and we started going to events, and we were like rock stars. So, I mean, you kind of get the feeling, all right, this is this is pretty good, and and, and we've got something here. And like I said, I think even Showtime was a little uh, surprised at how well it did. Um, but we were never 100% sure. I mean, every year, you know, you go through that thing. And And again, Showtime was very kind to us, and they would let us know before we wrapped a season, if we're coming back the next year. We always knew. Okay. Uh, if we were coming we never had to go through that thing of waiting a summer to find out
0: which is terrible i hear that it's like okay and then all of a sudden you'll someone will go hey man did you see the paper yeah you're canceled what hey did you see twitter no you're canceled now It's like yeah i
1: I have friends who've gone through that and it's it seems awful i mean i feel like i've been spared from a lot of the worst of of the tv biz in that way i didn't have to go through a will my pilot get picked up we just started filming and we knew we were going at least for nine episodes um and I never had to go through that wondering in a summer break, are we coming back or not? Yeah.
0: Now, how did it change your life? Because all of a sudden now you're in this cold hit. And once again, mm-hmm. people, I just said, you guys were very, um, you weren't like the ones, Oh hey, yeah, my girlfriend, you, you guys yeah. sat there and you're ambiguous about the character. Yeah. And which I think is good. Cause unfortunately some people would be, it's, it's, it's a two way street. Right. Like some people be, would be mad if, Oh, well, there's a gay man on TV. Right. But then there's other people who go, Oh man, what? There's gay actors. And unfortunately, a lot right. of gay actors don't come out. Right, so you can't, right. I mean, that's, that's in all honesty. So Absolutely. They're probably going, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure some of the gay communities that like, oh, go, what the hell? Yeah. What the hell is a straight guy? I mean, what what were you going well, through? Well, there was a lot. You know, uh,
1: you know, the show, because it was the first of its kind, because, you, you know, as, as our creators always said, you know, prior to Queer as Folk, gay characters were either clowns or eunuchs on TV. You know, they were either meant to be the sassy, the sassy gay friend. Or, you know, like Will and Grace, like, as kind of groundbreaking as that show was, you could never imagine them actually having sex. Right. You know, you would never see that. And and part of, you know, the legacy of Queer Folk, beyond uh, the fact that they were gay characters, the way sex was portrayed in the show as being such an integral psychological part. Like, you got so much of the character's psychology by how they had sex in this show. It wasn't done purely for graphic or prurient reasons, you know. Um and because it was the first of its kind, you got, you know, a lot of people in the gay and the LGBT community saying, where am I? Where are the, you know, there wasn't enough people of color on the show. There wasn't enough where are the trans people Where are the? you know, like everybody wanted to see themselves instantly uh, because it was the first, of its, which we got totally, you know, it was hard when they would kind of yell and complain to us about it because like, we're just actors in the show. I can't, I, I can't help you with, <laughs> with that, but I totally got it. And, um, and it was hard because. Our you know our writers had the stories they wanted to tell, and you can't include everybody in it. so so that was kind of you know that could be tough in terms of you know career wise, yeah, I mean, I you know I would get a lot of scripts for gay characters and things like that afterwards, and that's up to me and my team to say, all right, we need to kind of modulate that. Um, to me the the weirdest thing was more that I mean my character and and Peter Page, who uh, created the Fosters, as you mentioned. Um, we were supposed to be kind of the comic relief of the show. We ended up with a lot of very dramatic storylines as well. But prior to Queer's Folk, I was a comedian. I'm not a stand-up comic like myself. but but, like, I was doing mostly comedy. And that was the hardest thing for me after Queer's Folk was getting it on comedies again. I could only get seen for dramas.
0: Isn't that weird how that yeah. works? Well, now, how did the gay community overall, except for the ones that said, we're not here, how did the right. gay community, did they embrace you? And were they saying, this oh. is getting a word out? Because it was, uh, you know, as I said, I mean, you know, I graduated college in 86, uh-huh. and I'll be honest, there was gay, there was some gay people on the campus, right? but no one was out. There was right. really one, about no one came out, and, right. and it was that way for a long time. No yeah. one would come out and say, I'm gay. Now with this show, it's saying, okay, look, you know, hey, there are Gay people live a life, you know, they, they, they have friends, they have relationships. It was something that right. people aren't used to seeing. Right. And I think as if I was a gay man, a something like that would actually be somewhat empowering going, okay, you know what? Look, look, I you just know, we, we, said, we're not the clown. We're not the eunuch. Right. We're people. Right. And I mean, so did you get a good reaction from the gay community? Oh, so
1: wonderful. And continues. I mean, you know, we've been off the air for uh, 10 years now and we're still doing fan conventions all over the world. Um, I get stopped daily you know by people the biggest difference that hadn't even really occurred to me and until just thinking about it right now the difference was like when the show was on and and maybe it's a, again a mark of how far we've come you know people would come up to me and say like hey you're on the, that show right like they didn't want to say queer as folk right. <laughs> out loud and now like nobody cares like you're on queer as folk like so The kind of the acceptance level and the different generations that have kind of come to the show now, because now we get, you know, through Netflix and through all the streaming and stuff, we get, uh, you know, a whole new generation of fans of the show. Um, The appreciation and again for. It was hard not to be on the to be on the show and not get politicized. We all got very politicized. We all worked for human rights campaign. We worked for glad we work for, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening now. We, you know, started campaigning for back then campaigning for. Uh. Uh, presidential candidates who supported the LGBT community, things like that. We, you know, we were happy to have that role as kind of spokespeople and as straight allies or as, you know, uh, you know, gay members of the cast as well, going out and working on these things. Um, so to be on a show that people thank you for doing, not just, Oh, that was really cool. That thing you didn't know. Thank you. And I it just happened to me the other day. I was up in Griffith park and, um, uh, uh someone who I see all the time out jogging came up to me, uh, and uh, she was a trans woman, and just said, I, you know, I walk by you and your dog, or I run by you and your dog all the time. I'm sorry, I just ha- have to tell you how much your show meant to me and uh, helping me through everything coming out and who I am now. And, um, you know, and that's extraordinary to have been a part of something like that, that again, you know, 10 years after it even aired, is still affecting people's lives and that they thank you for, you know, is amazing. And, and for me, you know, the character I played also became a crystal meth addict, you know, just at, just as that was starting to become a real problem in the gay community too. And the number of people I've had who thanked me for that as well of like, I didn't know that I was in that spiral until I watched you and you saved me or, or you helped me save a friend's life because I saw what was going on with your character. And that's, uh, I mean, that's what we do this for, you know, to touch people's lives in that way, whether it's through laughter or or something. And so that's extraordinary to me. And that's straight people as well, too. Straight people who, you know, we've had mothers who have, you know, joined PFLAG. Even though they don't have a gay child, they just, they're out there fighting for gay rights now. So, you know, while I, I think, you know, the more mainstream media shows like um, Modern Family and, and Ellen, you know, uh, have certainly played such a huge part in uh helping so quickly progress the gay civil rights movement i mean it's amazing how quickly that 's gone and and where we are with same sex marriage and things like that in this country now um i I'd like to think we were uh, a good part of that as well too because we came along at a time and we showed a lot of people that you know gay people are just people too you know right. so, you know and um and that's, you know, that's, that's amazing. That's extraordinary. Well, no,
0: you had said when you, uh, when the show was over, you said how you were getting a lot of uh, requests for getting gay roles. So yes. It's like Willie Garson was on a few weeks ago and he said after Sex in the City, he went through the same thing. Well, I bet. And they sat there and, you know, his people said, you know what, uh, no, I, we as an actor, you did that role. And it's right. the whole thing. It's like, yeah, you can, I mean, it's like one thing, you know, if there's actors who do a shitty sitcom. Right, and then they sit there and they'll go, "Well, it's work," and they'll do another crappy sitcom. Right, and then you sit there and go, "Wow, this person's done a lot of crappy sitcoms." Yeah. As an actor, you want to grow. Was it? I mean, was it hard for you to turn those roles down because one, they're lucrative. Right. And two, I mean, as a gay actor playing portraying a gay actor, well, a gay yeah. character. Yeah. You know, the, on the on the short list, or right. right, you guys, anyone right. who left that show, they're going gay or straight. It doesn't make a difference. Right. People know them, and people identify them, and people like them. And you coming in, I mean. You know, even though your, your character is a method and all this stuff, right. people still looking at it, they will identify with you. And when you, it's anything, it's a lot easier for someone to watch a show where, I mean, they may think you're gay in real life, right? They may not know, right. But they associate you as a gay character. So it's yes. easier for them to sit there. And when you come onto a show, people are going, well, we want him because uh-huh. this thing." was it hard for you to turn down some
1: of those parts? Or I mean, what, what did you go through as, as an actor too? Sure. I mean, of course, I mean, yeah, it's always hard to say no to work. Um, uh, Especially if it's well written, and I kind of always use that as a benchmark. I mean, like if it was a if it was a project that is so well written, or it's a director I really want to work with, or the cast is, you know, then the character sexual orientation is is secondary to me. You know, we were kind of fortunate, like you know, that Queer Folk was a bit of a cult show, like as you called it. It did not. It never gained the mainstream uh, acceptance or like you know the mainstream media press. You know anointing it in a way like it did with Sex in the City. So Willie, I'm sure, you know, it must have been very difficult for him because of the numbers of people who saw that show and how well he portrayed that character, you know. And that's, and going way back to something you said earlier, you know, that thing of, of people assuming you are who the character is, and it's a difference between television where people, I think because you're coming into people's living rooms, they have a much more intimate relationship with you than they do with film actors. And they want to believe you are, and there's still people who, Believe I'm that character and want me to get psychological help and things like that. And have know, people and, come up and yeah, say that to you. Oh like. yeah, still. I mean, they still like you're so good looking. Why are you so down on yourself? I was like, no, that was the character. I, I know I'm. I'm pretty hot. It's okay. Um, you know that still happens. Um, and that's you know that's a compliment to what what you've been able to portray. But you know you want to say well like you know George Clooney isn't really a doctor when he was on ER and you know. And you don't really actually have to be a serial killer to play a serial killer right. and, and you don't have to be gay to play a gay character. you just have to be human um, but um yeah, it was hard to turn down some stuff and because you, you also don't want to you want to be able to ride whatever success you are on you and you you want to build on it right but um but i can't like I can't recall anything that I regret having said no to no um and uh, like I said, it was more, the, the greater challenge for me was to try to get back into comedic projects again.
0: And now, now, first of all, I know, I know you did, you did some voice work Yes. now for American Dad. Yes. Now, how did that come up? Because it's something that, you know, I look at your resume mm-hmm. and then, yeah, you know, of course you have the CSI castle. Yeah. Like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. yeah And then, you know, it's like anything you think, okay. And you're one queer as folk, you know, yeah. and you're a stage background and you go, also oh, wait. American Dad. Yeah. It's one of those things, which is a very funny show. Yes. But it's just one of those things. How does that happen? I mean, because it's so. That
1: that was a bit of nepotism, I have to say. I know one of the creators of the show, Mike Barker, who's an extraordinary comic genius. And uh, I just had known him personally back from when he was writing on Family Guy. And and so he was working on American Dad. And again, it was kind of around the time as Queer Spoke. And I think the first character he had me on for, again, when you say about turning down roles, it was. I think the, I can't remember the first one was I to play a gay Republican in a really funny episode or I played a used car dealer. I, I can't remember, but he, that was just purely him calling me in and saying, come on in. And I did a good enough job that they, you know, the casting director, Linda LaMontagne, called me in for other uh, other things they were doing. But that was one of those. I knew somebody <laughs> because right. it is like I haven't done. There hasn't been any other animated series I've been on. I would love to do my there. It, uh, it was so much fun. Well, now, as you were going out for auditions after The Queer Spoke,
0: were were you getting pigeonholed a little bit? Like, I mean, were people sometimes saying, oh, well, that's the guy who was, and then thinking... If they
1: knew, again, like, you know, within the within the industry itself, um, obviously most of the gay casting directors watch the show. I'll say this, too. There was a casting director who was the head of casting for one of the, the major networks who my manager was trying to get me in just for a general meeting, just to sit down and Talk with him. And he wouldn't meet with me. And she kept pestering him and he's like, nah, no, nah, yeah, yeah, I know him. I'm I I I don't I don't need to, to meet with him. And she finally said, like, what what is going on? Why don't you want to meet with him? He's like, I don't know. I mean, I think he's arrogant and and he's like, listening to all these things. I just I just don't really like him. I'm sorry. And she said, What do you can I send you his reel? And she said, Yeah. And she sent me his, my demo reel over to him. And he was rather sheepishly she said, Okay, fine have him come in to meet with me and he sat me down he said i have to apologize I, i'm a gay man i've watched queerest folk all the way through i've been with my partner for you know 15 20 years now and i am used to especially with series thinking that you have to cast people who essentially are those roles i'm not used to them casting actors <laughs> in right. these part and you're an actor and i see now that you're not that character you played i didn't i wasn't fond of your character and so I didn't want to. And so, and this is the head of casting for a network who you think would be a little savvier. So it all would depend on what their relationship was with the series. In some ways, fortunately, uh, it was fortunate for me that a lot of people didn't watch the series within the industry. I think the show got, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, got kind of cast as a bit of a soap opera, kind of a, you know, almost like a Beverly Hills 90210, kind of slightly trashy, kind of guilty pleasure um it wasn't the artistic kind of thing of the sopranos or uh i would say even more closely 6 feet under at the time was probably our most direct competition in terms of having a gay character on the show and uh dealing with uh, the kind of storylines we were dealing with um in terms of relationship based stuff um so it really didn't affect me that much i don't feel like i like i don't rem Again, like I feel like there were some things that came in that were just easy to say no to because I could tell like they just want me to do this. But honestly, I got just as many things for me to play an accountant as my character was on Queer as Folk, as I got to play yeah, a gay character. You know, so there was yes, there's that non-creative casting of like, oh, we've seen him do this before. We feel safe that he could do it again, so let's call him in for that. And um, and so I would say no to those things until um, some more adventurous stuff. And you know, and then you get to a point where you can't keep saying no to things you need to make some money and so you start doing other things and again i've been fairly lucky i mean there's been some parts on some of these crime shows or these cop shows that i've done that are just kind of generic right generic kind of things but i've also been i mean i have this recurring role on bones who this you know passive aggressive canadian forensic podiatrist who's a very funny character i had dave thomas from sctv wrote an episode i did and it was like you know that was such a thrill for me um so I have found a way to, to find some interesting characters and very different characters to play uh, in these in these jobs. And and I don't know, you 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 may know and understand this too. It's it's almost harder for you. It's almost better if they can pigeonhole you in terms of working steadily. You know, when they have to stop and think, could he do this? Could he not? You know, they would rather right. they would rather you make their job easy for you and. I guess, like I did with Pierce, walk in the door and show that oh, there's the character and that's it. But if they, as a casting director, have to think, I've never seen him do that before. I don't know if he can or not. They'd rather not take the risk. Um, and I think because I can do a wide variety of things, it's theatrically on stage, it's an amazing thing. I just, you know, came off a year of, you know, working on The Elephant Man, with uh, which, you know, I played multiple characters in that. I, that's what I do. Um, and I like exploring that. But sometimes in television, uh, especially, I think, uh, it can work against you that uh, that you're not just one thing. Now, The Elephant Man was yes. on Broadway. Yes. Now, how did that
0: come about? Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, a lot of people, they leave stage and you have a long background stage and, and then they get the TV and then, you know, you get an acclaimed role. And then you get used to TV. Yes. And then I think it may be, you know, because, and if you're, after you come off a series, it has to be a little bit scary because now people, you know, when you're a stage actor and people really don't know who you are. Yeah. They sit there, go, like, okay, uh, it was all right. But yeah. then when you're a stage actor and like people, you know, people, and it's unfortunately that people do this, but you have people coming out to see you on stage. Right. And like, well, hey, he was nothing like the guy from Queer. He was right. Nothing like the guy from Queer as folk. Well. <laughs> I thought, you know. There's no gays in the show, you know. It's like, I mean, how does? Yeah. I mean, what made you decide to sit there and go back to stage, and then, I mean, to get on Broadway must be such an oh, amazing, amazing, uh, just bucket,
1: a, bucket list, bucket list thing. I mean, since I, because I, as like I said, I grew up. You know, New York was an hour and a half outside where I grew up. I grew up going down to Broadway, seeing shows. The the experiences I had as a kid and a teenager seeing shows are, you know, burned into my memory. Seeing Ian McKellen in in Amadeus. I mean, so many like so many performances I. uh inspired me um so there's been my dream since i was a kid and i still out here i you know it may be profane to say it, but i i have not read the los angeles times since i've lived in los angeles i read the new york times every morning i read the the art section first thing is how i start my day so i know all the plays that are going on i know everything that's going on in new york so complete childhood dream bucket list kind of thing to do um i started a few years ago i mean i've done even throughout Queer as Folk, I tried to, on my off time, if I could do a play or work on a place, uh, be on stage somehow. I've, I've had to do at least one thing a year. I made that vow to myself that I would do that. I, I need that for me. Um, and I started, uh, I think, in 2006, um, a kind of an evil little plan of going back east in the summertime. There's a lot of amazing theater work that goes on in the summer uh, just outside New York City, either in the Berkshires in Western Mass. Uh, there's an amazing theater scene there in the summer. Uh, and a place I went to school, actually, the uh, Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, has a thing called the National Playwrights Conference, which was kind of was the first of its kind in the country back in the 60s. They invented staged readings. If you ever go to a staged reading of a play, that began at the O'Neill okay. as a way to, to develop new plays. And most every major new play that's been produced in this country started at the Playwrights' Conference. Um, and uh, so I started going back every summer and doing a play either in the Berkshires or working at the Playwrights' Conference and working on a new play there. Uh, and it was a way for me because they, these places get the best New York actors and directors and creative people who want to get the hell out of New York in the summer because it smells like urine and, <laughs> and garbage, and they get to go up into the countryside for a month or however long. Um, so. I got to work, start working with all these amazing New York uh, theater artists, and, um, and again, you know, I mean, the the theme continues to be dumb luck in my life. I, I had wanted to uh, go back east a few summers ago. This was 2012, I think it was. Uh, I was dating a woman who lived in New York, so I thought it might be helpful for me to be near the East Coast. Um, I had met. this director Scott Ellis, through his boyfriend, also named Scott, who I had worked with a few summers ago at the O'Neill, uh, and saw he was going to be directing *Elephant Man* at Williamstown, and Williamstown is kind of the crown jewel of the Berkshire theaters. And I'd always wanted to work there, never had since growing up. Again, I, you know, seen stuff there and in college, wanted to work there. So, uh, you know, I knew Bradley Cooper was going to be in it. Uh, I knew, I think they knew Patty Clarkson was going to be in it at the time. Um, but I knew their main three characters were going to you know, go to big movie stars because that's how they usually cast there. But there were these multi-character roles in the play, and I had done those in the past. I'd kind of vowed myself I wouldn't do them again because they can sometimes be rather unsatisfying to do. But you know, it was going to be a two-week rehearsal, two-week run, just a little thing for the summer, and it would get me back east. And my parents could actually come see the show because they live nearby. So I got in touch with Scott and asked if I could put myself on tape, and he kind of said, you want to do those parts? I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> and so I did. I put myself on tape and he liked, you know, the four characters I put on. And and so he said, yeah, come on out. And so I went out and did it for the summer. And that's all I thought it was going to be. And then two years later, and, and, you know, I found out while I was there how important the story in the play was to Bradley that he saw the elephant man when he was 12 years old. He saw the film and it's what made him want to become an actor. And he's been obsessed with the elephant man ever since. He he did a half-hour version of the play when he was at uh, the actor's studio for his thesis project, and this was very important to him. And so after we did the show, I started seeing him on interviews talking about it and saying that he wants to bring it to New York. But it took two years, and we ended up on Broadway with it. And it was and it was amazing. And then we, we just got back from the West End, too. We ended up going to London with it as well, too, because it did so well
0: in well, New York. It must be amazing also, because when you sit there and you... You want? I just said Broadway's a dream. Yeah. And then you, you know, and sometimes you're gonna be a Broadway play, you know, and people mm-hmm. and the play doesn't take off. Mm-hmm. But this must be amazing because it has that star power. And yes. the Bottom line, people are gonna, no one's gonna sit there and go, especially because he's the hottest actor around. No one's right. gonna sit there and go, uh, yeah, you know, oh, do we want to see with uh, Bradley Cooper, or do we want right. to see Abe Vigoda right. and Shot? <laughs> you know, they're not gonna say that. No. So that must have been great because when you're going in, you knew. That it would probably run as long as
1: you yeah. Yeah, wanted I, it to. And I knew the secret that, you know, a lot of people didn't know was that at that time, well, especially when, when we did the play up at Williamstown, uh, um, Silver Lining Playbook hadn't come out yet, American Hustle hadn't, you know, so I remember going to do the play and people were like, you're going to go do a play with the guy from The Hangover, right? you know, and he is truly one of, if not the best actors in our country right now. Uh, he, he is absolutely extraordinary as is uh, Alessandro Novola, who played the doctor in the show and Patricia Clarkson. And, and as it turned out, everyone in the show, but I especially knew not only were people going to come to see Bradley do it, but they were going to be so blown away by it. And you could feel that happen. You know, you would get the usual thing where there would be some teeny boppers in the audience who when oh, as soon as they saw him on stage, you could feel like the energy thing come out. And sometimes they, they would clap and it was kind of not appropriate for right. <laughs> the play for to, to get to clap in the middle of it. But, he because you know the transformation you know the play is not done with any makeup or anything like that he transforms himself physically he bends his body and his face and keeps it that way to kind of replicate what john merrick looked like the elephant man and it's you know complete very challenging role and as soon as he transformed like all that went away and they were just lost in the play because they all were so amazing um so, yeah, I knew it was going to be big, and uh, but I also knew people were going to see an amazing show. I didn't know we were going to go to London, and I especially, even when I started hearing that we might, I did not know that we were all going to go because that hardly ever happens. They usually never take the whole American cast over to England with them, but that's, Brad, I mean, Bradley insisted on it, and what he wants right now, he gets. Right. And so when he told us that, I started crying because I just, like, that was that's beyond a dream and know? isn't
0: amazing it was as you said that people were like well, you want to read for those parts but then it's yeah. something that it became this as you said it was it was off of a whim okay i can yeah. see my my parents can see me perform this and that and then from that and you end up you Then know, Broadway. then you yeah. get to london
1: yeah i mean i'll give myself credit for making it happen in terms of you know going after it and right putting, you know because my agents as you know bless them but at the time that I had, they always, they never wanted me going away to do these summer things. They always, you know, they want you here, and I, I needed to do it for me. And they would always complain to me every time I did it, and they were very happy to cash their checks when uh,
0: exactly. <laughs> I'm from Broadway in London, though. <laughs> now I was looking through your IMDb and uh, adoptable. Yes. Now, now you wrote that.
1: Yes, and you I wrote created it. i created this. We're just about to start shooting uh, in November, first week of November.
0: Now, how did the show? How did you decide to shoot the show? Uh, and did you have a long time pitching it because we have about we have about eight minutes left. Okay.
1: Um, I want to hear about it. I'll go quickly. It's um, Basically, I started, uh, it came out of me doing one of those you know, you know, programs like The Moth, the storytelling thing that a friend of mine insisted I tell the story about the search for my birth parents. Um, and uh, I had been really reluctant to do it because I, I tell all my friends about it, but I didn't want to share it publicly. Um, but I did it, uh, and it was a big success at the storytelling thing. And people laughed, they cried, all the things you want. And, uh, and I got asked to do it at other events as well, too. And I started thinking, hmm, there's something here and something people don't know a lot about. Um, and I wanted to tell the story on a larger canvas and I thought of different means of it. And I ended up thinking about a web series because I knew I could have complete control over it and I could just make it happen on my own somehow. So, um, I wrote a first season of six episodes. I, I love British television, uh, especially, you know, Ricky Gervais version of The Office and Extras. Um, and so I wanted to do something like that. That's very, because there was a lot of awkward, uncomfortable moments that go on, and as an adult adoptee trying to find your your birth family, and uh, that to me is very funny. So, uh, so I wrote this comedy, and it came out really well. And I started showing it around to people, and people got into it. And uh, I was able to attract this amazing cast to it. Noah Wiley is going to be in it. Sharon Gless is going to be in it. Noah Wiley, I, I said Noah Wiley at Linda Park. Eddie Jemison is in it. Jim O'Hare from Parks and Recreation. He was on a while ago. What a great yeah, guy! Yeah, what an amazing guy. And uh, and Gail Harold from Curtis Folk, my friend, is going to make a cameo in it. Uh, Ron Orbach, Andrea uh Julia Duffy, uh, and her husband Jerry Lacey just signed on to be on it. So everyone who reads the script loves it and wants to be a part of it. Um, Emily Swallow too. Let me mention her. Um, so uh, so I you know I ran a fundraising campaign last year for it foolishly while i was in previews for elephant man so i was doing the show and then rushing back and trying to do all the social media you need to do but we raised the money to shoot the first season um and i just couldn't be more thrilled i mean i'm in the process now of kind of trying to be producer and i'm you know organizing everything for the shoot i i i you know I wrote what I wanted to write. I didn't think about like, Oh, how easy is this going to be to make? Right. So I have like, I have, for instance, a a scene that takes place at a parade. And so now I have to figure out how I can do a parade for like no money. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, and, but actually, you know, so far I've been asking favors from so many people and everyone has said, yes, you know, it's, it's amazing what happens if you go out to people, uh, with your heart and uh, all the yes you can get back at times. So I may actually be getting a parade for very little money up uh, in upstate California, a little town up there may throw a little parade that we can film and and shoot our ridiculous little scene in it. And, you know, and um, it's amazing. So yeah, we're nearing the start of that. I can't, wait to do it it's really thrilling and now where will people be able to see this well uh, it first it'll we'll put it up on vimeo i have a channel on vimeo that uh they'll be able to see it through that or through my website through scottlowell.com we'll uh, we'll link to that as well and then you know the hope is uh people see it and like it and maybe someone wants to buy it who has deeper pockets than uh, all my wonderful you know fans and supporters do and we can uh you know they'll either buy the first season or they'll start producing a second season for us and we can do it on a on a bigger budget but um, right now it's going kind to of do it yourself. It's going to be six episodes, six episodes. Well, that's cool. That's yeah, good. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know your website's very nice and it's Scott, it's Scott He's yes. looking, he's looking at an apple. Yes. It's look yeah, it's like cool. So now, now I, now what can people find on your website?
1: Uh, they can find my website, y'all you know, news of what I'm in and what I'm doing. Uh, they can find my biography they can find photos from pretty much everything i've been on stage and uh, film and tv uh, they'll find a whole page dedicated to adoptable that will have links to everything you want for that um videos uh there's A Q&A section i have a section of whatever i'm listening to or reading or seeing right now people sometimes want to know um pretty much anything you might want to know about me you could find there
0: now, did you ever think that when queer folk
1: came out mm-hmm.
0: If social media was around then, I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, you would have like 90 million Twitter followers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. We, we talk about that quite often, you know, how much easier it would have been to build the show. Like, it's it's a lot easier to build the show now. And uh, and I remember actually, uh, my friend Jim O'Hare, when early on, when he had first gotten on Twitter, we had lunch. And he was like, yeah, you're on Twitter, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, how does this work? Can you show me? And I remember kind of like t- giving him a little bit of a Twitter tutorial. And this is when he was fairly early on in Parks and Recs. And I remember a year later, I was nearing in on my 5,000th follower. I thought, oh, this is amazing. And I had a whole, like, who's going to be number 5,000? This is right. amazing. And Jim <laughs> Jim had written to me a very funny little tweet. And I was like, oh, I wonder how Jim is doing. Over then I went over, and he had like 60,000. Oh, yeah. know, you know, if you're currently in the public eye, it's a lot easier to build up that kind of it's stuff. It's amazing, because I yeah. get it. Like,
0: people will post, you know, when they're on the show. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's I was sitting there. while Jim was one. And also with Jim Beaver. When Jim Beaver oh, was on. Oh, sure. Oh, my God. I sat there, and I was like, holy crap I said, you know, I, I luckily I think my phone shuts off, uh-huh. but I, I, in like, honestly, like in an hour, I, it was like 350 favorites. And That's like, amazing. And it's like the other night I wrote a joke and uh, Judd Apatow retweeted it. Uh-huh. And that same thing, I just kept getting retweet, retweet, retweet. It was about Bill Cosby. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> of course. And of course, I mean, it was, and of course, one idiot, you know, you always get that one idiot who goes, right. well, it's because NBC wanted him. They wanted to buy the network I'm like dude oh. no, he, He's a rape I, I said Yeah yeah I basically said I said Bill Cosby makes Kaiser Sose look like Not that bad of a guy <laughs> And I, <laughs> I did Apto Because Apatow is very Very anti-Cosby Right And so that's goes cool. So now do you, do you tweet a lot?
1: I try to as much as possible. I mean, I really try to at least respond to people if they write something, you know, directly to me. And I've honestly, this past year, uh, from having traveled so much with the show with Elephant Man, I've gotten so into Instagram of lately just because I love taking pictures of things I found. What are your two addresses? Uh, Twitter is Scolo, S-C-O-L-O, like JLo, but Scolo. Um, uh, Instagram, what is my Instagram? I think it's S-A. I think it's scolo222, two two, scolo two two two, I think, is my Instagram, and then I have there's a Facebook page as well for me under Scott Lowell, and also there's one for Adoptable.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks, Steve. This, this has been great. a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I, I sent you the
0: message, and I was like, all right, this guy, and then I saw all the Chicago stuff. I said, this is perfect. So people follow him, and an Instagram, just search. Just search Scott Lowell, yes. and that will show what his thing is. Yes. My Instagram is coopertalk1. I do a lot of, uh, believe it or not, I do a lot of uh, healthy eating on there. I do I do things like hey eat eat cheap uh eat healthy and cheap so i do pictures there uh twitter it's at cooper talk i write a lot of jokes in fact well this airs wednesday tuesday tonight it's the uh the, the debate right. so i always during the republican debate i was blowing up live twitter i was just writing stuff because it was so easy this one though won't be as easy because there's not as many buffoons that's what <laughs> that's it is just so, so follow scott low follow me on twitter it's at cooper talk that's at cooper talk also go to my website coopertalk.net i have over 425 episodes up there you can send me an email, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. Also, iTunes and Stitcher, one word, Cooper Talk. And uh, Google, if you have the Google Play Store, go get the Cooper Talk app, one word, type in Cooper Talk, you can get that. want to thank a new affiliate, uh, AMI Radio down there in Annemarie Anna Island in Florida. is starting to play my show Sunday nights at uh, 7, but if you hear this, then you already heard my show, so it doesn't help. And yes, and also my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember when I got out of the hospital? I had to change my diet. I wrote that cookbook, StopTheSalt.com, 120 low-sodium recipes, easy to make, no bunching of ingredients, no pictures to intimidate you. So you can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com to buy it, or you can buy it from me at StopTheSalt.com. I make more money, and I'll sign it. Anyway, that's Ben Adam, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.